0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Noren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about tobacco and cigarettes. And this is a massive issue for society and a problem that's quite endemic across society and something that has somewhat become acceptable in our society, unfortunately. So to get a handle on this, I thought I'd ask you, Fergal, how big a problem is Tobacco use in society currently.
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, so the the last data that we have from uh, the last national national household survey suggests that about eleven percent of people smoke, which is down slightly from the previous survey that suggested there were about twelve percent of people who smoke. But you you say that you know uh, society is permissive. Well, actually, we you know we do have quite stringent laws on smoking cessation. So for instance, you can't actually smoke in a public place in, in, in Australia. I think what, what, what I would regard as, as, as the permissiveness with regards to smoking is the attitude that clinicians have for, or with regards to smoking cessation when faced with the, with, with all the overwhelming need to treat other problems, including addiction problems in our patients. And and you know on that note we know that patients with any kind of addiction issue um, have a higher prevalence of smoking and we also know that in patients with addiction even though the, the, the even though clinicians think that smoking cessation is somewhat a secondary issue it's actually smoking with the consequences of smoking that actually cause most mortality in patients uh, with addiction if you look at the overall mortality figures.
0: Absolutely, Fergal, and I guess I should preface some of the comments in the sense that the overall road of smoking is going down, especially in younger generations where people are less likely to take up cigarettes, but mm-hmm. it is still a massive issue, especially amongst it's... certain populations, and we'll probably talk about that in further episodes yeah. of Cracking Addiction. But we do know that depending on the studies that we're looking at, that 73% of people in Australia with drug use disorders and 61% of people uh, people with alcohol dependence do smoke. And there was a Norwegian study also that estimated that uh, of people who are in an alcohol and drug rehabilitation setting, 75% Mm. of that population smoked as well. So sometimes smoking and other substance use disorders certainly go together hand in hand, but it is still a big problem in society overall because although the rate is decreasing, it is still quite a significant number and the harms associated with smoking I feel are sometimes underappreciated although all of us in general as citizens of the world would know that smoking has no health benefits i think sometimes as you mentioned to yourself we can be a bit blasé about the health harms related with smoking because it's not so much in your face as say heroin or methamphetamine related complications yeah, yeah. i
1: mean at the end of the day when you're dealing with someone with heroin use disorder or methamphetamine use disorder who also smokes their heroin use and their methamphetamine use is illegal, whereas their smoking use is legal. And actually, there's there are some that would argue that it's the smoking that's actually going to kill them before the heroin use or the or the methamphetamine use. So there is a there is a, a kind of an inconsistency in messaging there. And I think that that is why a lot of clinicians, especially AOD clinicians, kind of tend to want to sweep the the issue of smoking cessation under the carpet. There's also the other issue of the concern about whether or not um, encouraging smoking cessation during detoxes or during rehabilitation from other drugs actually either interferes with therapy for other treatments for other drugs or worsens the prognosis. And actually, you know, the evidence would suggest that uh, smoking cessation interventions can be safely delivered concomitantly with interventions for other drugs and that smoking cessation interventions do not interfere with other therapies. And actually, the prognosis, for the, the longer pro, longer term prognosis for patients with other substance use disorders is actually better when they quit smoking. So when they quit smoking, they tend to stay, there's more of a chance that they remain abstinent after one or one year or two years after, after interventions. So really, what I'm trying to say is, you know, AOD clinicians in particular are often tempted to overlook smoking as a health issue, when actually the evidence suggests that if you deal with it proactively, as you would any other substance use disorder, it actually improves outcomes and improves uh, adherence to treatment.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's incumbent upon us as both general practitioners, but also people with interest in addiction medicine, to make sure that we treat all the substances that our patients are, are, are taking. And sometimes one can get fixated on uh, another substance such as heroin or methamphetamine or cannabis. When, as you mentioned, Virgil, by far the longer term harms associated with smoking and the substance that is probably gonna kill the patient is the cigarette use. So it's important that we treat the patient holistically. And also, as you've mentioned, We do know with good robust evidence that smoking cessation interventions while someone is in say a detox facility for another substance that they're trying to withdraw off will not impact their management during this withdrawal time period. So it is incumbent on us to at least offer the patient uh, smoking cessation interventions whilst they're there to ensure that we're managing their overall health in the best available manner.
1: Yeah and I think it's important to emphasize that Actually, in Australia, it is illegal to allow people to smoke in a hospital setting or in a, in a rehab or a detox setting. So, we're not just talking about not treating patients with um, smoking, kind of with tobacco use disorder. We're actually saying, look, you know, it's illegal to smoke, so you have to do something. So, why not treat it appropriately and, and give it the due attention that it deserves?
0: And also, to piggyback off that idea, we do know that people who do attempt to stop smoking usually take multiple attempts to stop smoking and sometimes at least the introduction of nicotine replacement therapy or varenicline or bupropion or whatever other intervention that that one does trial at least the introduction will at least give the patient a taste of what the options are and can at least serve as an impetus for for further attempts to stop smoking so if nothing else it at least puts the patient on the journey to behavior change so I think I think it's basically a win-win situation. I don't really see too many harms in that personally as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's, I agree with you, Philippen, yeah.
0: Now, Fergal, could you talk to us a bit more about some of the physical health benefits of smoking cessation?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the, sometimes people get this therapeutic nihilism, you know, I'm too old to smoke or I'm too dependent to smoke or it's never going to work for me. But The benefits of smoking cessation can occur within 20 minutes because within 20 minutes of abstinence, your heart rate and your blood pressure fall. Now, this speaks to another issue that I hear a lot, that um, often people who are dependent on tobacco tell me that they smoke and it makes them feel relaxed, right? So it helps with their anxiety. Well, actually, we know that uh, tobacco use actually causes high blood pressure and high heart rate, which actually is a kind of a physical manifestation of anxiety. So... It's, it's actually a misnomer to think that tobacco smoking is, is a relaxant, or for that matter, can be seen as a treatment for anxiety. But anyway, so stopping smoking after 20 minutes, your heart rate and your blood pressure go down. After half a day or so, after 12 hours, your levels of carbon monoxide fall. Now, remember, carbon monoxide uh, expo- causes carboxyhemoglobin, which... Basically blocks the ability of hemoglobin to carry oxygen. So you're actually reducing your oxygen carrying capacity of your, of your blood. And if you can't carry as much oxygen as you would otherwise do so, then you have a reduced exercise tolerance. You feel tired. You feel lethargic. You're just not as fit as you could. And again, this, this, this strikes, this reminds me of a, of a friend of mine who he was a smoker, but he, he prided himself, prided himself on being athletic and he climbed Kilimanjaro right? So he gets to the top of Kilimanjaro. And what does he do? He lights up a cigarette, takes a couple of puffs, and then faints because he's already hypoxic. And then when he takes a cigarette, bang, he doesn't have enough oxygen carrying capacity. He collapses and has to be rushed back down the mountain. So, you know, that's after 12 hours. So within a day, you're getting, you're feeling fitter. After two weeks, your lung function improves. You've got more FEV1, your, your mucociliary escalator improves. You're able to cough phlegm up. After one year, your cardiovascular uh, risk begins to fall, and it, it's, it can reach about 50% of what it was, so it can reduce by half. After five years, your stroke risk becomes that of a non-smoker. After 10 years, your lung cancer risk reduces by half. And after 15 years of smoking cessation, your... Um, your, your, your risk of cardiovascular disease falls back to baseline. So, I mean, they, there's, a, there's another couple of things. I and mean, another one that I remember is that um, after two to three months of smoking cessation, wound healing improves. And that's really important for people about to go for operations. And it, I have a lot of sympathy for surgeons that say, look, I don't want to do this operation unless you quit for two months. Because wound healing is absolutely critical and tobacco, and nicotine and tar just prevents wound healing. on on so many levels. So, you know, the benefits of smoking cessation start immediately and continue for at least 15 years.
0: Well, that's quite a comprehensive list of the health benefits that one can achieve once stopping smoking. And I guess that kind of follows on to the next thing I wanted to discuss, which was how do you assess someone for an intervention to, to stop smoking? And by that yeah. I mean, how do you determine if someone is, say, nicotine dependent versus someone who has, say, the behaviours of just constantly smoking or the rituals around yeah. smoking because you've been doing it for twenty years? And I guess what my approach has been is that there's a very good article by um, by uh, a, a, one of the local doctors here in Australia. Um, who, Colin Mendelson, who wrote in The Australian Prescriber in February of 2022, a brilliant article about the smoking cessation options. And the way he determines if someone's nicotine dependence is a table called the Heaviness of Smoking Index for Assessing Nicotine Dependence. And it's a simple table, and there's only two criterion, the average number of cigarettes per day and the time to the first cigarette. And obviously, there's a bit of fine detail in terms of how you score it. But those are the two criteria that he uses to determine if someone's nicotine dependent and would benefit from something like nicotine replacement therapy versus maybe trialing some behavioral interventions. Do you have a similar kind of approach, Virgil?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the time to first cigarette really is, is key, isn't it? So you know, if you're someone who, the, first of all, before you do anything else, gets up and has a smoke you are heavily dependent. If you are able to get up, have a shower, go to the toilet, have breakfast, have a cup of coffee, and then have a smoke, you are less dependent. You know, it's, it's that's that saliency, it's that uh, that craving. And, and I suppose, really, what we're saying, what we're what we're seeing there, if someone has is basically gets up and then smokes immediately, or even before getting out of bed, smokes immediately upon waking, what we're here, what we're seeing then is someone is actually going into significant withdrawal because they may have not smoke for at least eight hours during, during sleep. So really it's that then brings me onto the idea of withdrawal and it's a bit like alcohol. So we know for instance, that people with alcohol use disorder, if they have to, if they have to wake up in the middle of the night to drink alcohol, or if they have to drink alcohol as soon as they wake up in the morning, that's a marker of severe dependency as well. So, you know, it's entirely consistent with our understanding of, of uh, substance use disorder and dependency in general. The other issue about the average number of cigarettes is also important. I mean, I think it's important in determining uh, treatment because if you're only smoking less than 10 cigarettes a day, well, you probably wouldn't really benefit from nicotine replacement therapy or any of the other therapies. Um, and another issue that I often think about is the age of the patient because we know that you know under 18s, adolescents tend not to benefit from pharmacological smoking interventions. They're more suited to to uh, you know talking therapies. But overall, I agree with that entirely. And in particular, I would emphasize the time to first cigarette is really important. And I have a rough guide. I say if you're, if you're smoking within 30 minutes of waking, you're heavily dependent and you need treatment, including pharmacology.
0: Absolutely. And I think to, to round out the episode of Cracking Addiction today, because this is naturally quite a big topic and we've got a few more episodes um, Planned for for this big topic is to discuss, I guess, the options um, and the treatment options for for smoking cessation. Now, the the Mm -hmm. first things we would probably talk about are behavioral interventions, then there's nicotine replacement therapy, then there's some of the pharmacological options such as varenicline or bupropion, and lastly, we'll be discussing vaping and the controversies around vaping. But yeah. I guess before we even get to all those interventions we talked about, it's about talking to our patients and, I guess, eliciting behaviour change. What's your view about the efficacies of doctors, GPs, addiction medicine specialists trying brief interventions or talking about smoking cessation to patients? And what's your approach to this, to Virgil?
1: I think it's absolutely crucial that... that, that all clinicians, including AOD physicians, including GPs, ask the question, how much do you smoke? In the same way, I think it's absolutely crucial for our colleagues to ask the question, how much do you drink? And I think a lot of people feel, well, what's the point? Because I'm not an expert in this. I don't know what to do next. But really, if you don't ask the question, you are denying the patient the opportunity of having a conversation around cessation, either of alcohol or of tobacco smoke. And I think we have to remind ourselves, and certainly we have to remind our colleagues, that brief intervention conversations lasting less than five minutes actually have a, have a statistically significant benefit in terms of achieving abstinence, be it with alcohol or be it with tobacco smoking. So asking the question is entirely valid. And even having a question, even having a conversation, such as "How much you smoke? Have you ever thought about quitting? What, what do you think the barriers are to your quitting? What do you think I can help you with?" Those basic questions, and it's a less than five minute conversation, that is associated with a quit rate above placebo of about one to three percent. And you know, someone's calculated the numbers needed to treat for that. And so, the NNT for brief intervention for tobacco has been calculated by as about thirty three. So for the sake of having 33 conversations with people, lasting less than five minutes, factored in within your usual clinical practice, you could save someone's life. And let's face it, stopping smoking is saving someone's life. There's no other way of putting it. So an NNT of 33 to save someone's life is actually twice as good as aspirin for secondary prevention. Let's put it into context. The NNT for aspirin and secondary prevention for any event let alone mortality, but any of uh, uh, any event, is 66. So smoking cessation brief intervention is twice as effective as long-term aspirin maintenance for secondary prevention. Now, what does that say about its importance in our clinical practice?
0: I think what it says is that it's an intervention that should be done. And I think it's something that is well within the wheelhouse of any health practitioner it doesn't have to be a doctor but any health practitioner to just ask the question and elicit if a patient is interested or or willing to change and sometimes this is a downstream effect i'm sure you've had the same situation as me fergal where a patient a year or two years down has said to me that thing you told me about smoking i was thinking about that for a while and after marinating on it for, for a little bit of time, did actually serve as the, the impetus of change. So mm. I think better. this is a, a great place to, to wrap up the episode of, of Cracking Addiction today, where we've provided an introduction to, to tobacco use, the harms associated with tobacco use, the potential health benefits associated with stopping using tobacco, the possible treatment interventions, and the vital importance of brief interventions in eliciting behaviour change, and how effective this simple tool is in potentially saving someone's life. So thank you for your attention on the episode of Cracking Addiction today, and bye for now.